0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's topic is Transitioning Thoroughbreds from Racing to New Careers, brought to you by the Retired Racehorse Project. Have you noticed a lot of thoroughbreds on social media recently? They're for sale. They're retiring from the track and ready to move on to new careers, or they've already made the transition into inventing or dressage or even working on cattle ranches. The resurgence of popularity of the OTTB is no doubt tied to the efforts of the RRP to promote these athletic and versatile horses. Seeing OTTB posts on social media makes me a little nostalgic. Uh, When I was in sixth grade, I had outgrown my pony, so my family ended up buying my first full-sized horse. I was 12 years old and he was two and just weeks off the track. Needless to say, I was a little bit over-horsed with my OTTB. But he was kind, he was smart, and he was beautiful. And I spent my teen years riding in Western and English and 4-H. Uh, one weekend, he'd be out in the mountains with my dad. And the next weekend, I'd show him an equitation pleasure classes at our local saddle club. He sold when I left for college, but I followed him throughout his life. Um, he died two years ago at the age of 28. It actually makes it a little sad to read that out loud to you guys. Uh, His last job was carrying around the kids of his third and last post-track owner, who had had him for 18 years. Looking back, I can see we made a lot of mistakes with Red. We didn't know how to let him down properly from the track, and he struggled because of that. Uh, We also didn't know how to feed his breed, and he struggled with that too. We didn't even actually have an arena to restart him in, so I rode him around the pasture. I just kind of hung on. Uh, it worked out in the end, but I wish I'd had the network that the RRP now offers for new OTTB owners. To help all of us uh, learn more about transitioning these horses from the track, we are joined tonight by Dr. Yannick uh, Gassarowski of Mid-Atlantic Equine Medical Center and a proud supporter of the Retired Racehorse Project. We're also joined by Stuart Pittman, who is president of the RRP. So let's go ahead and start with you, Dr. G. Uh, what is your experience with retired racehorses, and how did you get involved with this specific part of the industry?
1: Well, thanks, Michelle, and I guess I'll start with uh, thank you guys for having me, and, uh, and it's great to be here. So my experience starts on the clinical side, obviously, just as a veterinarian. Um, the, we do a lot of work on actively racing horses, and the more you work on actively racing horses, you realize there are a lot of reasons for. Racehorses to retire, you know, and I started to notice uh, a lot of our off-track thoroughbred clientele. They have this, these preconceived notions that uh, most racehorses are retired for traumatic reasons, or they're, they're washed out, they're burnt out, broken down, and that's it's just not true. There's so many thoroughbreds that retire for so many different reasons that are so useful um, in second career capacity that. Uh, it started to become a passion. I love the thoroughbred horse in general. I think it's a versatile breed. It's an amazing breed um, obviously I'm biased, but um, that the thoroughbred breed can do anything I and mean, you'll see I think it's rare to see uh, a, a, a Type of breed or type of horse that will excel no matter what arena you put it in and the thoroughbred you'll see them in any sport out there uh, competing successfully so Pairing the huge source of, of healthy off-track thoroughbreds with uh, a veterinary career it just seemed kind of natural. And got into counseling people with it. And then we ended up supporting a couple uh, thoroughbred-specific programs. Um, you know, we started as retirement programs and then quickly realized they could develop into rehabilitation programs. And then, uh, you know, as Stuart does so phenomenally, transferring them to, to second careers altogether. Um, yeah. And it, it's just easy for any that to get wrapped up there.
0: Yeah, well, that's the one that I had. He trained on the track. He never actually started, um, but he was definitely faster than everyone, all of my friends' horses. <laughs> so he <laughs> 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 was for me. That's great. Uh, um, oh, Stuart, uh, can you tell us about your involvement with the OTTBs and why you're so passionate about this part of the industry?
2: Yeah. I grew um, I up riding a pony, like a 12-2-hand Chincoteague pony, and we, we started fox hunting when I was about nine years old, and uh, the cool people were all riding thoroughbreds, and they were steeplechasing, and they were fox hunting, and, and so it was a pretty natural thing then. I'm kind of old. I'm 56 now. Um, it was a natural thing to want to ride a thoroughbred, and so um, that's what I did as soon as, as soon as I was big enough, and um, I got Hurricane Hannah. She was a California bred who had a big old chip in her ankle. And got that got that taken out and off, off we went and we got up to preliminary eventing and uh, you know she was my first real dream horse and uh, and then I got away from horses for about 10 years and then came back to it and decided I wanted to make a living on the family's farm and I had to figure out a way to do that and so I went to the racetrack and I started getting horses off the racetrack from people I knew and turning them into event horses and selling them and uh, that that turned into a a cool business for me and it, it made me a professional. Um, I, tr- I got out of it for a while and I tried to breed horses and that didn't work out as well. You couldn't make money breeding horses waiting until they were four or five years old and I kept seeing horses off the track that were, I wish I could say I bred them. So I got back to the horses off the track and uh, and then I, I kind of got frustrated with the whole warm blood invasion thing. So we started the Tired Racehorse Project uh, to educate people and bring the thoroughbred back. and and it's really taken off.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I wanna give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse live format. Uh, We're gonna be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have questions that you'd like to ask live or if you have a follow-up question uh, to one of our answers, uh, go ahead and, and send your questions in if you're listening to us via your computer. Uh, We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible, Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, I'm going to put the first question to you, Stuart. Kayleen in Ontario Canada wants to know, where are the best resources to find a horse to get off the track? Is it from race owners, nonprofits? What, What is your suggestion?
2: Well, I think it depends on a lot on your experience and who you know and what's in your area, and um, and you know a lot of people are doing this for the thoroughbred makeover, so they're all trying to get the best horse, which is natural. Everybody wants the best horse they can find. Um, so, on the retired racehorse website, retiredracehorseproject.org, uh, there's a horse listings which has got usually two or three hundred horses in it. If you go to the right column uh, down below the advanced search section, there's a little button that most people don't notice. So we should probably make it a bigger button. And it says more horse source links. And if you click on it, there are uh, links to about 30 or 40 different organizations or sites. All the Tanner chapters are there and they're great because they're listing horses that are at the track or still with race owners if you want to go straight straight to the source. Uh, there are some of the nonprofits that do listings, and then there are about 18 Facebook pages from OTTB Connect on down to a whole bunch of others, um, some of which are you know specific to offspring of certain stallions. Um, so, there's a lot of online stuff, and online shopping is, you know, it's a, it's a little scary, a little dangerous. There's an article in our last issue of Off-Track Thoroughbred Magazine about just that. Um, but you know, it, it, there are a lot of private resellers, trainers that are great. Um, there are a lot of nonprofit aftercare organizations um, that are um, subsidized mostly by the racing industry um, that are great. And really, you just, I can't say that one source is better than any others. Um, if you're a total beginner, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with getting a horse that's already been retrained by somebody else as well. Okay.
0: Okay. Our next question is for for Dr. G, and it's from Kimberly in Reno, Nevada. And Kimberly wants to know what are the best uh, diagnostics to run or pre-purchase elements of the pre-purchase exam to be done before you buy an OTTB.
1: Uh, You know, it's going to depend mostly on what you plan to use that horse for. Uh, If you're buying a horse strictly as a pet, you know you you may not even need a, a real pre purchase. I mean, that's a scary thing to say, but you, you, if you're not needing much of a performance out of that, that horse, then you could get away with just a quick once over, make sure it's healthy, not going to introduce anything foreign to your, to your barn or your farm if you have one. But if you're looking for performance, you know, you're young Stuart you Pittman looking to be um, a prelim you're going to need a true once over, you know, where that's, you're, you're looking at, uh, First and foremost, radiographs. Um, radiographs end up being a flying ointment. Sometimes there are so many issues that can come up with radiographs that do or don't affect some horses. So, doing a pre-purchase exam that involves a good lameness and flexion testing examination, and then radiographs specifically in the thoroughbred racehorse, I do the front feet and the fetlocks. Those are and the knees. minimum if you're looking for an athletic thoroughbred uh, down the road that's where most of their problems crop up and those are the joints that have most um, most of the issues if you start radiographing the whole horse that's fine but you're going to come into other problems that you're you're not going to know what to make of them the other areas are a little bit less pertinent to what that horse is going to do you know if you're looking to turn an off-track thoroughbred into an upper level dressage horse well on investment style resale you're going to need a more complete set of radiographs you know both front feet all four fetlocks and stifle because that's what's going to be radiographed once you try to sell that investment to the next person down the line and you're going to want to know what you're starting with because even if it doesn't affect the horse clinically it could dramatically affect the sale another one big one we see in the thoroughbreds is they're predisposed to their dorsal spinous processing being on top of each other or and about 90% of horses with radiographically abnormal dorsal spinous processes are completely fine and non-clinical. There are 10% that that it's going to affect their back and when it does it's a big deal but it will kill 99% of your sales if somebody x-rays your horse's back and, and you see that. So that's a caveat for the investment crowd. For the athletes in the crowd you're looking for an excellent lameness exam and then radiographs. When I see a little is people going on radiographs alone. You know, they're not near the horse. They don't know any vets. Because the horse, they take a set of x-rays. X-rays are clean or clean enough, and they say, okay, let's go. But, you know, I cannot stress a clinical examination enough, especially for a horse that needs to perform. You need a vet with their hands on, flexing, jogging, and and making sure that horse is okay. So bare minimum, the once-over if you don't have much to do. If you do want athletic endeavors with the horse, flexions, lameness, and a basic set of films. And if you plan an investment-style resale of a the horse, then you're going to want a more complete pre-purchase rad set. Okay.
0: Um, we have a question from our live audience for Stuart. It's from Allie, and she said that she's seen the phrase war horse in a few uh, ad listings for OTTBs. What does this mean? Can you explain that to, to our audience?
2: Sure. Sure. I just want to throw out, though, on the last one, that uh, my old friend Jimmy Wofford used to say that the horses that have cleat, that the uh, um, the horses that have clean x-rays get sold, and the horses that have bad x-rays go to the Olympics. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, just keep them. Yeah, um, yeah. so um, war horse, yeah. War horse means uh, ran a lot, and uh, there's no definition that I know of of how many races that is. Some of us think of about 50 races as mm-hmm. qualifying a horse as a war horse, and uh, I love them. And the reason is that you know, when you get a horse off the track, if you get a two or three year old, it's a two or three year old. You know, it's a baby and it's, it's brain and its body are still young horse. And when you get a horse that has raced 50 times, especially if it's seven, eight years old or so, um, it's got a different temperament. And it's also proven usually that it's gonna stay sound because it can hold up to that much racing. So some of them, you know, some of them might be in bad shape, but um, I've seen war horses, horses that raced a lot Really become very good trail horses and fox hunters, um, but also some of them be real athletes. But it's just that they're they're more broke. They've seen more, and um, and they're, they're they de- they tend to be underappreciated.
0: Uh, We have a follow-up question for Dr. G uh, going back to those pre-purchase exams. Sadie's in our live audience, and she wants to know how big of a deal-breaker previous injuries are, especially the the quote-unquote scary ones such as suspensory injuries, sesamoids. If you're looking for a thoroughbred as a mid- to upper-level sport horse, should you maybe pass on those kind of injuries?
1: Yeah, I mean... The knee jerk reaction has to be in a way, yes. I mean, if you're looking for an upper level, if you throw that mid to upper level in there, that's the killer. Um, If you're looking for a mid to upper level, don't pass on all injuries, but specifically blown suspensory, really bad suspensory branches, um, anything with significant arthritis already, those are going to have to be passed. But I will also say that some of the best horses that we're actively treating in our practice at the moment, have these injuries. They may be lower-level athletics, but they're doing very, very well. So if you specifically want to curtail that question to the upper-level performing horse, then suspensory is probably a good one to, to stay away from. Now, I'll also throw in that if that suspensory injury was properly dealt with, horse flexes negative, flex is negative and is, is sound on pre-purchase, then you, that would be a risk worth taking. You'll probably get that horse for a bargain too, because it's going to have. If it's got the bone suspensor, it's going to look bad, and they're going to have a tough time getting, you know, moving that horse along. So, it's it's tough to ever say disregard it completely. And some of these horses will surprise you. I mean, there are there are thoroughbreds out there performing with injuries that that you wouldn't even think they could possibly come back from. Um, but but yeah, is one I to stay away from for an upper level.
0: Okay. We have another follow-up question, Dr. G, that's health-related. Uh, Jesse wants to know if upper respiratory problems that affect the horses on the track will impact the uh, thoroughbred when it moves on to a second career.
1: Uh, great question. And those are, kind of, Stuart mentioned war horse might be one of his, diamonds in the rough. For me, certain respiratory, actually most respiratory issues are diamonds in the rough. Because A horse that cannot breathe properly or makes noise while it's running or has a little bit of an air intake problem cannot possibly be a successful racehorse. This means you're probably getting a racehorse that is not very heavily raced, was probably retired or moved along earlier. And most respiratory issues that plague a thoroughbred or eliminate the the career potential for a thoroughbred are not issues at all for their second career owners. Now, in the case of a paralyzed arytenoid or severe chondritis, you may need to deal with those cases but there are surgeries to fix them. They're pretty high success rates. You're talking you know, for tie back or a to fix those upper upper airway issues. You're talking success rates in the 80 to 90 percent range, and um, you can get some really nice horses that way. Uh, some of the best horses are, are bleeders or horses with uh, exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. They they they're exercising hard in the track. Some horses will adjust spontaneously bleed, for those in our audience who aren't familiar with the term bleeder, uh, when they hit the extreme positive and negative inspiratory-expiratory pressures at full speed, it'll break down the capillaries, it'll cause them to bleed, and that horse is taken by the stewards out of there. They, they cannot race, they cannot train. Some horses like that, it, it's almost impossible to get rid of that that issue as a racehorse. Those horses can become second-career horses and never face that issue at all. So you probably got a horse that's not a war horse, that's probably quite healthy in terms of the number of miles that have been put on it, and that type of disease won't plague you as a, a second career owner. So yeah, off-track thoroughbreds with respiratory disease, as long as it's your best check it out and telling you what it means for that horse specifically, almost all of them are good news for a retiring resource.
0: Okay. Uh, our next question is for Stuart, and it's from Jan in Bend, Oregon. That's where I am. I don't know Jan, but if you're listening, Jan, hi, neighbor. Um, Stuart, she wants to know how you select a OTTB that is amateur friendly. And I am i would like to have you go a step beyond that even and explain what it's like to go to the track and purchase a horse if you're buying direct from the track. So can you, uh, how do you see if they might be an amateur friendly horse? Do you have any tricks, tricks well, up your sleeve? Well, yeah,
2: <laughs> um, luck, no. Um, <laughs> First of all, if you really need an amateur-friendly horse, probably the racetrack isn't your number one place to shop. You're better off going somewhere where the horse has been let down and has where you can where you can actually ride it. You can't ride at the track and and really get a good sense of horse's temperament. But when you do go to the track, especially if you know people uh, that that you know you have a relationship with, so they're gonna they're gonna tell you the truth. Um, Exercise riders will tell you when there's a horse that is really easy or really quiet. And, uh, and you know, they won't, they won't lie. Most people won't lie completely. They have the horse's interest in mind. And so, so if a horse is nuts, they're not going to tell you he's quiet. But um, it's a real different environment. So they can, be, they can be very different at the track than they are off the track. But, I mean, I do, when I shop at the track, I, I do look for temperament. And I do it by looking them in the eye, walking them into the stall, putting my hands on the horse, feeling, you know, feeling, touching him everywhere, and just seeing how he reacts to my touch, for one, um, and, and, um, and, and sort of weighing that with what people say. And, you know, sometimes when you're at the track, you're getting a horse for often very little money. Um, you really like the horse, you move fast. You know, I've been there with a horse trailer where I've come home with two or three. And, and you just, you have to take a risk, but if you're getting one horse and you n- need to know that it's going to be an amateur friendly horse, um, you're probably better off going to, um, an Africa organization or a person who's taken the horse off the track and, and given it some time and seeing what it's like when it's laid down.
0: Okay. Uh, if, uh, I watch one of our, uh, OTTB, uh, Facebook pages here, um, on the West coast and Saw a pony horse come through and I sent him to a friend, and she's like, I want him. Let's go get him. And then she's like, But I can't ride him. I was like, No, you can't ride him. So, what expectations should people have when they go to the track of how much hands on well, they'll get with that animal?
2: Yeah, it's, it's tough, which is why I think every racetrack should have somebody uh, who works for the horseman's organization who is there to help people who come onto the track to look at horses. Some of the Canner affiliates will. Will go with you, um, and when you look at horses. But when you go, first of all, you, you the trainer has to get you in to the backside. So um, they usually have to leave your name at the gate where the guard is. Sometimes some tracks they have to act you there, and then you go in, and um, and the horses generally in a stall. They're tacked up in a stall. They're groomed in a stall. Tied in a stall. Um, so that's usually where you put them. It's often dark. It's often hard to tell much about them. Um, They'll usually bring them out of the stall and they'll walk them um, in the in the shed row. Um, You can you know you can watch them walk. They can they'll jog, but often they're jogging on pavement between the between the barns, Uh, usually on a slant because it's for drainage. And the horses are pretty pretty hot when they come out of their stalls because they're in stalls all all day, and um, so they trot tense and you often can't tell a whole lot about their movement other than that if they're even or uneven Um, but you do get a sense of their confirmation and you get a a little bit of a sense of their temperament Um, you can you can schedule when you know they're going to gallop and you can go out and watch them and you can watch them race and you can watch them in the paddock at a race and that's always interesting um, if they're still running but you have to have a license to ride at the track so unless you have a license you can't go ride
0: yeah so we have a question uh Stuart, from Sarah in our live audience, you mentioned horses getting let down, uh, possibly before an amateur um, gets it. Uh, Sarah wants to know, in a nutshell, how do you go about letting a horse down off the track? Do you have a process that you've developed for that?
2: Um, it depends on the horse. So some people always let a horse have time without being worked, and they'll turn them out. Um, and some people will go right ahead and work. My my theory is that what we do here is we'll, we'll bring a horse. Usually they're sent to us for training, so the owner expects them to be to be worked. But if it's right off the track, we'll take them in. We're lucky we have an indoor arena, um, and um, we'll watch them. We'll watch them move. Sometimes you can lunge, sometimes you can't. Uh, they get too excited on the lunge line um, if they haven't lunged. Um, but watch them move and see if they feel comfortable in their body. Get on and ride and see if they feel comfortable being ridden. If they feel like, if you feel like the riding is, um, the horse is happy and the horse is progressing, then I believe that um, riding is good as part of the letdown, part of the transition. So they're still being let down, um, but they're, they're getting some exercise and they're in a routine, which they're used to. And I find that you're, you're, you're better off in your training Sometimes than letting them, then turning them out and letting them become, you know, wild horses. Um, the throwing them out and letting their shoes fall off and letting them get thin and um, and allowing them to go out there and suffer. It's not, it's not what I recommend. Some people swear by it. Some people think, oh well, then you know, then they're real quiet. And you get on and you ride them. Um, but um, most people nowadays will. Uh, gradually let you know gradually reduce their feed, gradually increase their turnout. Some horses you turn them out in a field when they've been at the track and they stand by the gate weaving because they want to come in. Um, <laughs> so you have to and, and acclimate them to the to the group. So every horse is an individual and let down for every horse really depends on on how that horse feels but there are it's a minority of horses that come off the track with loose muscles in their back yeah. and and that really swing and that's a great thing when you can find it. Um, But even the ones that are tight, um, if they're not in pain and they're just tight, I really believe that the work, if it's good work and it's productive work, is part of what loosens them, stretches them, and, and makes them happy and makes them progress.
0: We have another question from our live audience. This one's for Dr. G. Kay says that her OTTB had a severe reaction to a particular vaccine. In your practice, have you found that thoroughbreds are more prone to reactions when they're vaccinated? Uh,
1: Straight answer is no. Um, We see vaccine reactions. They're they're infrequent, but we see them across all breeds. Um, So I would not say that thoroughbred is predisposed by any stretch of imagination.
0: Okay. Um, Our next question is, um, I think Dr. G can start, and then I'm sure Stuart will have some great insight on this too. Sarah in Kentucky wants to know, what is the most important thing you look for in a potential project horse as far as their confirmation.
1: Well, it it would, again, depend a little bit on what your project is. I mean, what do you plan on doing with that horse? In some cases, confirmation just isn't going to matter a whole lot. Uh, for me, the simple answer is I try to stay away from horses that have a toe in, ankle out, or if the fetlock embarrassed is a medical term, but if the toes come in, and the fetlock's bow out, or if the knees bow out. So if you're looking from at that horse from straight in front of the horse, if it looks like you've got kind of a bow-legged in front, that's, that's a harsh confirmation on the joints, on the fetlock and the knees. And if a horse has raced like that, trained like that, and you plan on continuing the athletic work like that, uh, I stay away from those. Otherwise, under other conformational issues, horses can work pretty well within their own confirmation. You know, um, conformation comes up in the, the racing world a lot for discussion because the horses are going so fast, it's so hard on their body that they've got to have perfect conformation to stay sound. But if you're off the track, small flaws in confirmation don't matter as much as people would think that they do. But for me, I'd stay away from toe in, lock out.
0: And Stuart, what are you looking for in confirmation and a thoroughbred for a, for a new career? Um, well, yeah, I agree with that. I would add
2: I would add feet to the list. Um, that uh, not one. all thoroughbreds have great feet, and sometimes they they don't look as good because of the way they've been shod. But you know, when you can find one that's got some heel um, and that's got a decent sized foot uh, with a good wall, that's a great thing for staying sound. Um, and I agree that, you know, most, most thoroughbreds have pretty darn good conformation and they're built to be athletes. And so they can do most of the things we want to do. And, um, you know, of course for eventing and, and dressage, we like them a more uphill build. So the ones that are, that look a little bit more like quarter horses and downhill, um, probably aren't going to move as well and aren't going to jump as well. Although there's certainly exceptions to that, uh, but not going to be as comfortable to canter down to a jump. As, as much of an uphill horse and uphill means you know nice when the weather's a little higher than the croup uh, at least level but i like them higher i like big prominent withers um and when the neck comes up out of the shoulder um in a higher place than uh you know whether the horse is looking up or looking down um and that's sometimes hard to judge but with experience you sort of get get a feel for how they're going to move from the way they stand um, but uh but i've seen them in all shapes and sizes be great Great horses in all kinds of sports.
0: Oh, I think it's fun to see the horses in their sales videos that have been posted, and then see them down the road when they're under work and and how they've developed in that year or so of work. Um, it, it's it's fun to see how they how they progress. Um, Stuart, we have a question from Cheryl in Florida and Cheryl wants to know how many horses are successful versus unsuccessful in transitioning. Are there some horses that just don't make it to second careers?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, but I I have no idea what the numbers are. Um, mm-hmm. I know that it depends largely on who's training them. So the success rate is much higher um, from somebody who's good at what they do. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, and I I guess you know there's probably a success rate with um, non-race horses too um, that one could look at. so it's it's certainly a vast majority um, and in the thoroughbred makeover um, it's I guess success it's hard to measure success. So, um, you know there are the horses that do the the 11, 10 months or so. Um, some of them have less than that, six months, um, to prepare for the makeover, where they start from scratch. Um, about 60 to 65% actually show up, but that doesn't necessarily mean the others, it doesn't mean that the others failed. Often it was because they were successful and they sold them before the makeover, or that they um, um, that they had some some minor injury that kept them from going, just like a horseshoe, like a sun bruise, um, or that, uh, some people will get, um, you know, two or three horses and then they'll switch and they'll take the one that's doing the best. So
1: um,
2: I've got to say that among the makeover horses, probably more like 90 percent um, or more end up having some career. Um, but uh, I think it depends a lot on on the training. Most work out, but it's really it's the decisions you make at the beginning and um, um, how good a job you do.
0: We have a question, Stuart, from our live audience. It's from Sophie. She said that she is 17 years old and just started leasing a seven-year-old OTTB. He is doing very well under saddle. However, his ground manners are not so great. She says she's new to the breed, so she's struggling with how exactly to deal with his poor ground manners. How would you go about working on improving an OTTB's ground manners?
2: Uh, Well, the first thing I would say is that uh, make sure that the person um, is also trained well. The, um, the horses that come right off the track uh, are used to professionals, and if you go around the track, most of the people are very deliberate in their movements on the ground. Um, they're very businesslike, and, and um, they're not second-guessing the horse. There's not a lot of hesitation. Um, they're confident, and so if the handler is confident, and you know, and deliberate in everything that they do, the horse will start to trust a lot more than if you know if you put mom who's not used to horses and you say, can you hold it, you know, at the horse show, and uh, it goes it goes south real fast. Um, so, um, but you know, the other thing about a thoroughbred versus another breed is that um, you know horses find peace in different ways, and some are <laughs> are most peaceful when they're standing with all four feet attached to the ground. Um, a lot of thoroughbreds um, are much more comfortable when they're moving. So when you're mounting, uh, it, it might take some time for a thoroughbred to stand to be mounted. And um, um, allowing the horse to walk away as you're mounting actually be the best strategy for a while. Um, and and um, allowing the horse to walk in a circle might be a better strategy than forcing it to stand to allow it to eventually get to the point where it will stand. So don't be afraid of motion, forward motion. It's what they're bred for and and just be very very precise and firm and if it takes a chain over the over the nose a chain shank um, or something to give you a boundary so that the horse can work within a boundary and that boundary does not give um, the horse will usually uh, become more calm too than if they can just push through the boundary because they're stronger than you
0: yeah are there things that the horses coming off the track may not know how to do uh, that you might expect a horse of a similar age that had been raised in a show barn would know how to do, for example, standing in cross ties? Like, Should you expect that the horse knows how to stand in cross ties or should you expect that you need to train it to do that or to ha- hard tie to a, a hitching rail um, or even loading in the trailer? Are those things that the horse uh, horse is going to know how to do?
2: Well, they're generally going to have loaded in, in trailers or vans, uh, often you know, larger shipping vans. Um, more likely, and um, they're rarely cross-tied, almost never. At the track they're, they're usually tied in their stall, so not out in the open either. Um, they uh, they are gen- they generally um, walk off as the as the rider is lifted up onto their backs, and they're allowed to walk away. Um, so yes, those are all those are all issues. Um, they're usually great at being you know hosed. <laughs> Um and because uh, they get bathed every day, most of them at least in the, in the warmer part of the year. Um, and, um, you know, of course they, they, uh, they don't always steer so good and they don't listen to the legs so good. So, you know, go to the track and watch what a horse what a horse does and it'll tell you what they're not good at or what they haven't done. Okay. There's plenty.
0: <laughs> um,
2: but, but, you know, doctor- they're, they're also the most intelligent breed on the planet, I believe. They, mm-hmm. the flight instinct makes them, um, uh, sen- and the sensitivity. Uh, makes them respond well to training and they seem intelligent. I don't know how you define intelligence necessarily, but um, they certainly learn fast, they think quick, and, um, and that works for you and against you.
0: We have a question for Dr. G. It's from Penny in British Columbia, Canada, and she wants to know about building top lines without using gadgets. Does specific nutrition really make a difference in developing a top line in a horse?
1: The short answer, if I might get sarcastic, is show me a food that makes my biceps bigger and I'll show you something that can make your top line, your horse's top line bigger. Uh, No, any sort of nutrition that goes into the horse's body is going to be divided up amongst the entirety of the body. So any dietary intake that's going to help a horse system-wide may help your top line. But there's no nutritional product, byproduct, supplements, Anything like that that's going to specifically help a specific area, um, and it it is about the way you work the horse, the way you train the horse, and and what you're doing with that horse to build musculature. Uh, some of the ways that we train these days is, is uh, harmful to the top line, or at least makes the puts the horse in a position that's uncomfortable uh, and doesn't let them build the musculature properly. Whereas others are are beneficial. One of the, a good example I think of helping build the top line is you know long and low work and a horse you're letting the horse get its head and its neck down um bringing its its with its, uh, its shoulders up um you know getting the horse into a frame and it, it takes the top line to do that and if you try to force a horse to do that while you're cranking it back up in collection all you're going to do is make that horse uncomfortable they're not going to use their back properly and they'll fight you and we see a lot of horses come into the practice with the complaint of back pain and back issues and then wants to back injected or shockwaves or measles or whatever have you um, where the problem really is is the way the horse is being worked um, you bring up the mention of gadgets but some of them uh, help engender that i think one of my favorites of the solo lunging system you know that's exactly what take your, own, your bicep, but you're going to do a bicep curl. And you bring your bicep almost fully curled. There's only so much more
0: Oh,
2: Well, well, we know Yannick's not sponsored by any supplement (laughs) company. You're
0: you're right. That's exactly right. (laughs) So I was going to ask you, Stuart, how long should you expect it to take for a horse to start developing over their top line when they're coming off the track and going into uh, other work? Is it going to take a year uh, or does it just depend on the horse and the rider?
2: No, less than a year. Okay. Um, I mean it can take a year it can take uh, um, and as the horse as the horse puts is putting usually they're putting on weight uh when they come off the track ideally I mean they come off lean, they come off looking good sometimes, um and so when they lose some of the muscle that they have from racing, sometimes they don't look quite that good um to us but um um they they might drop some muscle and then they have to, to gain it elsewhere. But certain you know some horses three in six months, um, other horses it is a year or more. Um, and I loved I loved Yannick's description of of all of that um, and how that works. And the only thing I would add to it is that in order to get the muscles working the way he described and um, to build things, um, a key is tension. And if the work if the horses is tense in that work, even if it's in a frame and it's tense. If you imagine yourself tense, um, the muscles aren't, I don't think the muscles can really grow and build in the same way that if the horse is rhythmic and happy um, in its work and then just working away up the hills, wherever, you know, around the circles, whatever, rhythmic and happy. Um, to me, somehow it seems like the muscles are, are doing something that, that is better.
0: We have. Now I question. put
2: that in scientific terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's exactly right, Stuart. I mean, I think you said
1: this. What you said is exactly right. When the horse is, re, is moving, relaxed, they what you said—that relaxation is the stretch of the muscle. A horse that's tense is is up, is trying to work its muscles when they're already at full contraction. It's just it doesn't build muscle. It it hovers there in a full contracted state and. That's not how muscle builds, and as a matter of fact, they can predispose themselves to injuries working like that as well. And that's why I think they come into the clinic with pains for sore back when really you just need to get them to relax and, and ride or train them properly.
0: So, Stuart, I, I have a question for you in that uh, relaxation and rhythm for the horse. I have a hot little mare who has uh, quite a bit of thoroughbred in her, and she, uh, I, she reminds me of my thoroughbred that I had when I was a kid, um, because she. Is tense for a long time and you kind of have to work her down from that how do you recommend getting that horse to the point that they are relaxed does it take time during that individual ride or is there a point where you've gotten them so exhausted that from the warm-up that they can't really do the the work to finish relaxed it's it's yeah, very exactly, challenging <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, well, it, you know the horses really I def, define that. They, you know, when you're training, you want to stay below a certain level of tension. You don't want to just stand around and do nothing because you never accomplish anything. It's the only time that the horses relax is standing still and <laughs> or walking. And then as soon as you trot, the horse becomes tense. Um, it doesn't mean you should you should never trot, but. Um, you have to be smart you have to figure out um, what does keep the horse below a certain level of tension and try not to let it boil over and anytime you get frustrated it's going to boil over anytime you know you get at all tough or abusive it's going to it's going to boil over and the best thing to do is to just stop and you know put the horse away and and try again another day Um, but um, you know i've never found a horse that gets better when When it feels like it's it's battling against your aids, Um, you know your aids can be firm, they can be strong, um, um, and they have to be for the horse to learn not to to push through them sometimes. But um, um, you know, and like we, I think I said before that you know thoroughbreds love to work. Maybe I didn't say this, but they love motion, and and they can really relax in the motion. So. Sometimes it requires cantering because that's the gate where they happen to be the most rhythmic and happy. And sometimes it, may, it might even mean cantering out in an open field in a two-point with your hands down like an exercise rider, breathing and waiting for the horse to settle into its rhythm, and then it becomes happy. Um, sometimes it's on the trail. Other horses freak out on the trail sometimes. Uh, so it's, it's different with every horse. So you, you just have to find that place where the horse is at peace and, and figure out how to train within that zone.
0: Mm-hmm. We have questions to the audience. It's from Jackie, and she said that she's been working in uh, horse racing for over 20 years, and believes that with the correct training, most thoroughbreds can do anything. She says that uh, she believes a lot of issues during transition come from riders' lack of knowledge regarding the horse's previous lifestyle and how to work with uh, the thoroughbreds. How? how do you help the rider transition to the thoroughbred if that hasn't been their experience? Say it's someone who has been riding quarter horses or warm bloods and is changing over to the thoroughbreds, how should they uh, change their expectations uh, with their OTTB?
2: Um, Well, I think the really good trainers who have a really good feel, it doesn't matter whether they've been around thoroughbreds. I've seen some of that with the makeover with you know, folks who come in, particularly out of the quarter horse world, um, you know, they listen to the horse and they respond and then they say, wow, these thoroughbreds are fantastic. I had no idea. Um, so um, so some people are just good. They have good feel and they got have good experience that they got with other breeds, maybe. Um, I do think that people who um, who who've work with thoroughbreds at the track have learned to be sympathetic. They've learned to be clear and firm. Um but, um, you know, good horsemen tend to be, I find, pretty calm people. And a lot of these exercise riders have, you know, who, who've handled all different kinds of horses. They're fantastic. I mean, and one thing that you'll notice about them is that they're very still on top of a the horse. There's not a lot of movement. There's not a lot of flailing around. And they know where the middle of the horse is. And if you can stay still in the middle of a horse, a thoroughbred is going to love you and uh, and not work against the motion. So. Um, I think I do. I mean, I really do believe that there's nothing better for a rider than to go to the track and learn how to gallop a racehorse. Um, um, but that um, it's not it, it's not so much no know, knowledge of of thoroughbreds at the track. It's it's feel and having allowed them to teach you um, where their middle is and how to stay still and, and just how to communicate from that sort of that magical place that you see those exercise riders find some of those good jockeys.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to go from the hot horses to uh, the not-so-hot horse. <laughs> um, Dr. G, this question for you. It's from Sherry in Ontario, Canada. She says her OTTB drags his toes and seems to lack energy. He is very motivated, um, but she's had him checked by various body workers and hasn't figured out what's going on with him. What suggestions you have for someone who has an OT T V that seems lethargic? Oh, Dr. G? I lose you? Hello? Oh, are you back, Dr. G? Yeah, I
1: can hear you guys pretty clearly.
0: Oh, Sorry. did you hear the? Did you hear the question about the lethargic thoroughbred? Yes,
1: I never, I never seem to lose you guys. So what I was saying is, I think the first thing you need to do is determine whether the horse is truly lethargic, uh, or is it sick or painful? You know, there are a number of reasons that a horse can do the things described, namely, seems lack energy uh, and catch the toes. Based on the nature of the question, it's very motivated. I think very if you're thinking off that your horse is very motivated, he probably probably isn't truly lethargic um, as much as dragging the toe or just not having that impulsion or the power from behind or everybody kind of describes it a different way. Uh, first and foremost, I, I think lameness when they're catching the toe. Um, any sort of heel pain, uh, foot pain is classic. Associated with catching the front toes. Um, if the horse is catching or dragging its rear toes, behind uh, those feet, then uh, I think stifle pain. I think upper limb upper limb pain uh, predominantly, but you also have to consider neurologic disease. I mean, some horses are retired from the track because they know something's wrong. The horse isn't running well, doesn't stride well, something's wrong, but nobody can really place their, their finger on it. The, the time isn't necessarily dedicated to you know, thorough evaluation on the track end and sometimes they get passed on. They're not injured, so theoretically they might make a good second career uh, or off-track thoroughbred type horse, but when you evaluate them from a closer standpoint with a a more discerning eye, you start to see some neurologic deficits that that weren't picked up before. So I honestly, I think the best thing to do is have your veterinarian look at the horse um, with an eye for eliminating lameness issues first and foremost, but then if the horse does
0: Question from our live audience for Stuart: uh, Callie wants to know if a thoroughbred can become scared or nervous around other horses as a result of training at the track, and if so, how likely is it that this can be overcome with training after they've come off the track?
2: Um, good question, because um, some horses clearly have a temperament that makes them more nervous, and uh, sensitive to things coming at them, just because they're scared, scared horses. Um, but yeah, I believe that that um, I mean it, it works both ways. You know, thoroughbreds are used to being ridden with other horses, um, and so they actually often, you know, like any horse, takes comfort in the herd. Um, but yeah, I've had some who, in the warm up ring at a horse show, <laughs> and there's horses coming in all directions, uh, just come undone, and they just want to get the heck out of there. Um, And sometimes you don't know it until you get to the horse show because you ride alone at home or with not many people around. And so it can be a hard thing to school. And, um, you know, the only thing I can say if you do have a horse like that is um, that, yes, the horse can be acclimated, um, but that it might take spending a lot of time standing around in a warm-up ring or just standing at the edge of the warm-up ring, you know, with the horse in hand, um, finding situations like that if you're at a place with a bunch of people and there's you know riding lessons going on and a bunch of people in the ring um, just going in there and sitting on the horse um, or standing there until uh, so that they're not moving thinking that you know um, they're gonna get hit but um, and, you know and there there are probably horses that have been in situations at the track that scared them but but um, um, yeah, I don't know how much of that has to do with being a racehorse and how much it has to do with, with just the natural instinct of a horse to protect itself when everybody's running around.
0: Yeah. But
2: Doctor- the solution would be the same. You know, solution's the same either way. Okay.
0: Dr. G, our next question is for you. It's from Debbie Debbie in Aztec, New Mexico. She wants to know how you determine if a horse coming off the track might have ulcers. Ulcers. So, uh-
1: The short answer is that you need a a gastroscope. Um, Gastroscopy is a procedure where the vet is going to take about a three-meter or nine-foot-long scope through this horse's nose, down the throat, and into the esophagus, and down into the stomach and look and see if they're there. That is the only way that you can positively tell whether your horse has ulcers or not. The tricky thing about ulcers is that there are so many different behaviors and issues that are, are we associate with ulcers that may or may not be true. We see horses coming in um, with the thought that they have ulcers based on not eating, mild colic, uh, girthiness, um, unwillingness to move forward, uh, non-responsive to the leg. Uh, I, can, I can you could go on forever with all the different ailments that are are blamed on ulceration, but when it comes down to it, the only way to truly tell if your horse has ulcers is to scope its stomach. Uh, That is almost never done in the field because it takes a three-meter long endoscope, and it's just an uncommon thing to find in the field, so you'll probably have to go to a a referral-type center for that. Uh, Some of the companies that, uh, specifically Marielle, um, have... Programs where they'll go different places with a person specifically, or better specifically equipped to do these types of gastroscopies, and they'll do them for free. And they'll check your horse, and uh, they run a bunch of horses through, and obviously they make their money selling the product when they diagnose enough horses with ulcers. But you can get the horse scoped for free in some cases. Uh, but if you think your horse is truly suffering from ulcers, then the best thing to do is take it to a clinic and have it scoped.
0: Uh, Stuart, we have a question from Tom in our live audience. Tom says he adopted a thoroughbred last month. She came without a history. I can't make out her tattoo to properly identify her. Do you have any suggestions on what I can try to find out who she is?
2: Um, what's Jockey Club. Look, if you go to the Jockey Club website, there's, I forget what it's called. Maybe one, one of you remembers Jockey Club. Look up something. There's a there's a way that they can help you if you take a photograph and send it in of the tattoo and try to help figure out um, based on the horse's color and markings and and uh, difficult to read tattoo, um, possibly. Otherwise, uh, you know, if there's no history, you don't know where the horse came from. Um, or I don't know, maybe, is there, a, can you do DNA testing for this, Yannick? I don't know. Um, uh, soon they will all thanks, have a though. microchip. Huh? Yes,
1: exactly. That. That's exactly where I was going to go. Soon they will all have the microchip. But for now, DNA testing is probably no good unless you've got uh, unless you've got the sire, the dam, um, the sire yeah. and dam both, you know, on the registry. I think it's unlikely they help. get. Well,
2: yeah, yeah. as of last as of last last year, right? They all was it seventeen? Was the first year that all the foals got uh, microchips rather than
1: yeah.
2: or not rather than yeah. tattoos? They're still going to tattoo, I think, uh, for a while.
0: They are for now. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Um, I just received a message from Erica, our news editor, who is reading your questions as they come in. And her suggestion, uh, what she had to do with her off track thoroughbred was go on a very dark stall with a very bright flashlight to try to make out the tattoo. And that, and that helped her. I know she knows who her horse is, so she figured it out. I think it probably took a little detective work. Um, Our next question is for uh, Dr. G, and it's from Greg in British Columbia, Canada. And Greg wants to know if you advise new owners of Off-Track Thoroughbreds to take their horses' shoes off and leave them barefooted or to boot them when required, or should they have shoes on? Uh, Yes,
1: Stuart alluded to the thoroughbred foot early on in the discussion. I think it was a great point that I should have definitely added to the confirmational checklist. Thank you, Stuart. Uh, but uh, along those lines, thoroughbred are known for the thin shelly feet. And oftentimes when they're in the transition process, the feet are, are neglected. So what I'll say to the clients is if the horse is doing well, leave the horse in whatever setup you've got. If the horse comes to you barefoot and is comfortable, then fine. Just trim lightly and leave the horse barefoot. If the horse comes in shoes and is okay, leave the horse in shoes. Even if those shoes are sort of are growing under the, where they're just the hoof is completely overgrown the shoe. Well do for trimming. Pull the shoe, have the horse trim, but reapply a shoe. So basically try to maintain status quo. If the horse is sore, then you're gonna have to, to either change the style of shoeing, apply a shoe, Um, And in some extreme cases where you've got such a thin shelly hoof wall, flat foot, low underrun heels, um, you know, a boot might not be a bad idea. Something like a soft ride boot uh, with the dual density inserts, the, the little section where the frog sits is raised slightly. That can give a little bit of frog support. And sometimes those boots, or any sort of protective boot will give a horse the chance to grow a little bit of foot so you and your ferry can start to work together. But it takes, uh, it takes a, a dedicated owner with a, a, you know, a consistent, dedicated ferry to get somebody's feet the way they need to go. The classic problems are the thin Shelly hook walls and underrun heels. I mean, some of these horses for a, a light, fast foot is what they're after on the track, and some of these horses are just taken right down to the heel where the coronary band of the heel is almost on the ground. And if that's the case, you're going to have to offer a little protection there. Okay.
0: Our next question is for Stuart. It's from Ed in our live audience. And Ed would like to know how much an amateur rider can depend on a sales description of a horse to feel good about pursuing it to purchase. Do you have any suggestions on that, Stuart?
2: Uh, not much. Um, the, the, thing, the things that people write, in ads for horses, Um, there's a a lot of opinion that goes in, you know, 10 mover, clips loads bays, this, that, and the other, Um, that is pretty meaningless usually. Um, Facts are facts though, so competition records, age, height, which height can sometimes be exaggerated. (laughs) Um, um, But, you know, a lot of people will tell you stories about horse shopping where, you know, the horse was nothing like what the description was, um, you know, videos and photographs don't completely lie. They give you some indication. Um, but, you know, that's why shopping for horses is frustrating. Um, that, uh, you know, and it depends on, on who it is who's, who's selling the horse, too. So there are some very reputable people who um, um, you can, what they say is, is um, you know, you can pretty much count on it because they have a reputation that they need to uphold. But even then, um, there it, it's it's their opinion, and it might you might not agree with it when you get there. So, but it's all you got to go
0: on. So you do. Okay. Um, we have
2: I probably
1: a vote for the uh, a vote for the the organizations that help.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if you're going to get a much more consistent um, description from those groups. You know, like RRP, like Turning for Home, some of the track associated groups that are are helping the horses along.
0: we have a question for dr g from our live audience julie is thinking about purchasing a thoroughbred as a broodmare how long should she wait after her last race to be bred
1: technically there's no need for any wait period at all you know i mean she needs it there there really isn't i mean you could uh you have a breeding soundness examination done um you could give her a a you know, letdown or cool off period, if you wanted to, to try to make it a little safer to be around her. And so she's not going to transition well to or, or easily from a, a racehorse on the track to a breeding scenario. But biologically and physiologically, she's ready to go. So technically, you don't need any wait period.
0: Okay. Well, we unfortunately are out of time. Uh, for everyone who's listening, I do know that Jennifer, our web producer, posted a link in the chat. Uh, to our resource article, we came up with our 10 top resources on thehorse.com about transitioning horses and off-track thoroughbreds. You can find that at thehorse.com slash OTTB resources. And so take a look at that if you're looking for more information. I want to go ahead and thank Dr. G and Stuart Pittman for joining us tonight.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. (laughs)
0: Um, I want to thank everyone who submitted questions uh, ahead of time and everyone who listened live and to the Retired Racehorse Project for all it does to support and promote off-track thoroughbreds. I hope you can join us next month for Ask the Horse Live. Until then, from all of us here at the horse, have a great night.